Okay, you guys, just to really quickly, I had the pleasure to sit down uh, this afternoon with Seth and Wendy and Kathy Maggie at the helm and to interview John Delenn. Uh, tonight, you're going to see part one. This is where John talks about his life growing up. And just hang with it. It's fascinating. This is a man who brings something to the table that you, uh, you aren't probably ready for of who he was in the Mormon church. Next week, we're going to talk about Mormon stories. So that's part two. And the third week, we're going to talk about his belief in God, in, in faith, in, in the homosexual uh, LGBTQ movement, all the stuff that he's about now, his excommunication is going to come up, all from the heart of this guy. He is a straightforward, straight shooter, and I really enjoyed our time together. So right now, let's take a look at part one. Okay, welcome our very special guest, uh, brother maestro, uh, Dr. John Delenn. I, I can't tell you how grateful I am that John is taking uh, time out of his busy schedule. He's a very busy man, uh, didn't have to do this, but he elected to. We go back a long way. Uh, John interviewed me on his uh, Mormon stories uh, back, we've been talking, I think 2009, numbers 221 and 222. And... Um, so we have some history between ourselves. Before we hear John, I just want to explain how we're going to do our time together so you'll know about tonight and the next week and the following here on Heart of the Matter. First part one, uh, I've asked John to just tell us his uh, history. People are interested in the person. And uh, he's very well known, uh, especially in Mormon circles and then outside of it too. So just asked him to talk about his upbringing, parents, brothers and sisters, interests growing up, uh, sports, whatever, college, mission, get past the mission and to right up to where he does his first Mormon stories. That's what we would like to hear from you. And if something comes up that I think is interesting, I'll interject. All right. Otherwise, it's all yours, brother. Oh, I'm just going to monologue? You're going to monologue and I'll, 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 I'll say, well, wait, and what do you think of this, sir? Well, I, I have to say first, Sean, it's so nice to be on Heart of the Matter. Thanks. Uh, you've been doing great work for so long, and I consider you a friend, and I respect your work and your persistence and your integrity, and so I'm just thrilled to be here. Thanks, Sean. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Thanks for Likewise. <laughs> so, I just start going, huh? Just start going. I was born... <laughs> I was born... <laughs> A poor child. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was born in Boise. Uh, my dad was born in Salt Lake here. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and uh, he was the son of like a ditch digger, uh, Great Depression uh, father. Mm -hmm. And my dad probably quit high school early, you know, and never graduated from, from college mm -hmm. uh, or high school. Mm -hmm. uh, my mom was born in Franklin, Idaho. She was more of your blue blood Mormon type. Mm. She, uh, she was a Benson and a Parkinson. Wow. So Samuel Rose Parkinson, one of the early LDS church leaders is one of her ancestors, ours. And she was a cousin of Esther Jeff Benson. So she grew up on a farm in, in Franklin, Idaho, went to Preston high school, which is where Napoleon dynamite was filmed. Wow. Um, and so, and she was the, my mother's mother, uh, was the was the daughter of a third wife. So my so my grandmother, who I knew, was actually in a polygamous wow. Mormon family in Idaho. Mm -hmm. So that's certainly got the Mormon pioneer credentials, mm -hmm. as we all do. But um, my I was the youngest of four. Mm -hmm. So my parents were married. Uh, actually, my dad, uh, my mom was going to marry kind of a basketball star from the University of Utah. Mm -hmm. And my uh my dad who's kind of this young rough kind of up and comer stole her away from this nice. kind of blue blood university of utah basketball star guy who became like a doctor okay. so um i think my mom wanted a little bit of danger and excitement in her life and so <laughs> that's uh, what she got with my dad so uh, anyway uh yeah i was the youngest of four and um my parents spaced out gina's my oldest sibling uh, she would be 60. She's passed away. Mm -hmm. uh, then Julie, 55. My brother, 50. And then I'm 48. Um, Joel's maybe 51. But but uh, yeah, I was born in Boise, Idaho. Mm -hmm. And 
lived in Boise and San Francisco for two years, and then it was all Texas. So five years in Dallas and 12 years in Houston, specifically Katy, Texas. I had no idea. Yeah. So I'm a Houstonian, mostly, Mm -hmm. and a Texan. And my dad was a policeman, and then he got into kind of government bureaucrat jobs, and he worked his way up, and... um, and uh, that's what took us to, to Houston. He became an entrepreneur in Houston. And so, yeah, grew up there. And the church meant everything to our family. Oh. We were, you know, I can remember the days when soccer meeting and mm-hmm. Sunday school primary were kind of, you'd go multiple times. And uh, throughout the Sunday, I can remember starting out at a branch. And then we built a ward in, in Katy and... It was back in the time when the members would all help yeah. build the build the chapels, mm-hmm. and uh, I remember the days when, like, to print the, oh, the yeah. program, you'd have the purple mimeographs yeah. that you'd have to hand crank. And mm-hmm. I'm sounding really old, but do you find the do you you look on those days with some fondness? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you moved to a place like Katy, Texas, that was this kind of suburban sprawl. The big oil boom of Houston mm-hmm. brought all these people from all over the world to this kind of sleepy rice, you know, farming community outside of Houston. Mm-hmm. And you don't know anyone when you move there and all the subdivisions are just sprouting up. Mm-hmm. And you all of a sudden have this instant community. Wow. And I remember the Chudley family that was from like Waller, Texas, and he was literally a rice farmer and he was branch president and all his sons were kind of hicks and tall and strong Mm. and sturdy. And, you know, the Laytons and brother Layton, you know, grew up with general authorities in Salt Lake. And so he could tell you about his stories with Heber J. Grant or George Robert Smith or David O. McKay. And he acted super spiritual and. Like he talked directly to God and you just meet these really cool people and they cared about you and you cared about them and you grow up with their kids and, um, yeah, Mormonism was awesome back then. Yeah. Yeah. And I sense in you, uh, something I've always sensed in you, you had a love for people since I've met you, you love people talking obviously with them. And that comes out from your youth. You're talking about the Laytons and you're talking about the rice farmer and you're talking about the building, the buildings. You love that interaction with people. You just carried it to a different place, but still. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And it grew, but you know, I just, I can't believe I've never really gotten over how wonderful my adolescence was going to, you know, ward dances and steak dances and regional dances and steak scripture chase and yeah. regional scripture chase yeah. and dance festivals and road shows and temple trips. We actually chartered like three buses and drove from Houston, Katy, all the way to Mesa, Arizona, because that was the closest temple. Mm. It was like a two or three day drive. Crazy. Yeah. And the kids are all bonding. And, yeah. And there'd be like you know, teachers who would get up on the bus and teach about the signs of the times and the second coming and Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon and and you'd eat it all up, you know. And Lex de Azevedo was published that book on pop music and morality and you you felt like you were better than everybody else. Yeah. I, we were in this town of Baptists, the Southern Baptists. Mm-hmm. So Katie Katie uh Texas was a Baptist town. Wow. So they would hold uh, you know, once a year, a seminar on Mormons and other cults, right? Wow. And so they'd show the Godmakers, and all these kids would come to high school, you know, asking me questions. Is it true that you believe that, you know, Satan is God's son? And is it true you do these weird things in the temple? And I'm like, no, that's none of that's true, <laughs> you know? And uh, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, which was very mm-hmm. kind of Christian. Yeah. They weren't sure they wanted a Mormon, you know, as a part of their group. And, you know, girls, when we'd start dating, their dads wouldn't let me date them. And there was this weird vibe of, like, being super proud to be a Mormon, but being persecuted in a Baptist town. But that makes you more jazzed to be a Mormon. Mm -hmm. And I got off on never drinking alcohol and never never smoking, you know, never touching, you know, a girl where you shouldn't touch a girl. And it kind of... It gave me this identity. I felt like I was better than everybody. And I loved it. And <laughs> I was part of God's chosen people. I mean, who doesn't want to be part of God's chosen people? Sure. Yeah. So it was just, and, and, and I guess uh, 
parallel to that, my my parents got divorced when I was in sixth or seventh grade, oh. and and <clears throat> that could be devastating. But for me, it was just like the church was right there to raise me when my dad was busy or you know off with his second wife or third wife or whatever. My mom was trying to get a job and earn a living because she was having to feed us. Mm -hmm. The church was just right there. I'd go to scouts. I'd go to mutual. I'd go to you know, seminary and I have leaders that love me and who looked after me and challenged me to be better and mm. kept me on the straight and narrow and kept me out of trouble. And I just, I, w I wish everybody could have that upbringing mm -hmm. without, I guess, the things that aren't true right. and without, um, you know, I guess the arrogance and the exceptionalism mm -hmm. became a burden, but it sure felt empowering at the time. Sure. Do you yeah. think that same uh, environment exists today for the youth? No. No. I mean, maybe, maybe in pockets, but yeah. they do track. Mm -hmm. I know that that means a lot to a lot of people, mm -hmm. but I get the sense that the dances are, I mean, the dances were just like... Everything. You were in California, right? Yeah. Southern California, I mean, everything. Do you ever dance? Do you remember your dance cards? Oh, we, we, yeah. didn't, we didn't have dance cards, but I heard you yeah. guys did. Just imagine an entire stake center, wooden floor chapel filled with youth and everybody's hopping and yeah. dancing and the lights and the music yeah. and nobody's sitting on the sidelines everybody's dancing together it was joyous yeah. yeah i don't know that dances are like that when i talk to my daughters about like going to the institute or the mm -hmm. you know back when we were in the church they're just like oh everyone stood around and looked at each other and mm -hmm. it wasn't that fun i don't know yeah. i don't know i I, I don't. I know they don't do roadshows anymore. They don't. I, I don't think they do dance festivals unless mm -hmm. there's like a temple that's being mm -hmm. launched somewhere. I don't know. I, mm -hmm. It feels like some of that magic has been lost, but mm -hmm. I can't speak for. Well, maybe it's been lost in, in our society in general, in some sense. You know, I do get the sense that when Boyd K. Packer kind of took control, he wanted simplify, simplify, simplify. He actually, he's quoted as being very sensitive to people having to spend too much time at church and mm -hmm. taking that away from the family or whatever. So I think they've tried to simplify and minimize all those activities. But mm -hmm. for me, they were just marvelous. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah. Anyway, I wish everybody could have that type of upbringing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's idyllic. It was, it yeah. felt that way. Yeah. 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 Until it didn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Until it didn't. <laughs> Mom and dad divorced sixth grade, you say? Seventh, sixth, seventh. I mean, it was like an on and off, mm -hmm. you know, it was kind of on and off again. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad was disfellowship. That was super hard to go through, the mm. shaming of that. Mm. I don't think he was, and I think he was always a good man, but um, he wasn't allowed to ordain me a deacon, and I had to have like Brother Layton ordain me a deacon. Punitive. It, it just it feels kind of yucky. Like, yeah. that, that, you know, and that was like probably my first crack in my testimony. Mm. It was, I didn't. I didn't conceptualize it as a crack at the time. Mm. But, you know, there's this plan, which is like, hey, families can be together forever. Mm -hmm. And you're singing, you know, families can be together forever. And, and you're singing that in primary and you're super excited about how you have an eternal family. And then all of a sudden you don't. Yeah. And you're like, oh, so I'm every time that's harped on, well, that's not me. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, then will I be with mom or will I be with dad? Mm -hmm. Will I have? Will there be visitation? Oh. And you start you start wondering like how that works yeah. and how much does it apply to you? And you you come you compartmentalize it, mm -hmm. but it's always in the back of your head. Even if you get married, mm -hmm. you're still wondering, well, who am I with in heaven? Mm -hmm. And it, it it makes heaven all of a sudden a sad place. It does. Ways. Yeah, sad yeah. heaven. I'm not a big fan of sad heaven. No, sad heaven is not very <laughs> really nice. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. siblings. Yeah. Still active. Um, so that was interesting. My oldest sister, Gina, she, uh, she was not able to find her Mormon boy. Mm. And so she married a non-Mormon mm. and, uh, I was really worried about her for so many years. I was mm. like, Oh, poor Gina, poor Gina. She married a non-Mormon. What's going to happen to her? She ended up after she having her first kid becoming the super Orthodox Mormon. Wow. She moved up to Canada and, uh, she was really devout for many years, raised three kids in the church. Um, and uh, she was devout until her dying day. Mm. And she passed away just uh, about a year and a half ago, oh. colon cancer. Oh, sorry. And uh, 
And she was just like, up until the end, she's like, I pay my tithing, got my temple recommend, I'm ready to go. Wow. I'm like, aren't you a little sad? You mm-hmm. know, she's like, nope, I'm ready. I'm like, okay. Did her husband ever join? No, he never joined. Wow. No, he but smoked. But they stayed together? He smoked. Darn it. So that you, darn smoking. You, you can't, Yeah. <laughs> you know. He so, smoked. Yeah. Nothing else needs to be said. <laughs> yeah. Can't follow you know the lord if you smoke i don't think he's too weak (laughs) no i i don't you know he was also like he never i don't think he was kind of a common sense he's a common sense guy and i just think he's like you guys think you're better than everyone and one true church and you're all kind of weird and a little bit judgy Mm -hmm. i think he just never it wasn't just that i think he just kind of never bought it (laughs) got it that makes sense but he was really good to my sister Mm. he was he's been a loyal faithful husband and father you mean that's possible i know not just that but we were all we all in the family kind of looked down on him Mm -hmm. like oh well he's you know Mm -hmm. maybe someday you know Mm -hmm. like he's like he's not good enough Mm -hmm. so that was um my my second my second sister julie she she lives in kentucky she's had four kids and she's the most orthodox of probably all of us wow and uh she, uh, you know, all her sons served missions and they were all temple married, but, um, you know, it's hard to keep your kids in the church these days. It is. And in some ways I think, you know, my oldest sister, I, I, I only think one of her two kids mm-hmm. are still active of the three. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I think my second sister too, her kids, one, one of her kids converted to Orthodox Christianity. Wow. After serving his mission and whatever. As he, in Russian or Eastern? Or yeah, whatever. Eastern Orthodox. Wow. Wow. From Mormonism. Yeah. Really smart guy. Really mm. great guy. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, so, but I think sometimes the church sets people up. Mm-hmm. You, you give all your life to it and it's about the missions and the temple marriage and families. And then the kids fall away and, and all of a sudden you're like, well, then I failed. Yeah. Because how, you know, if you've given everything to the church and the eternal family and then the family falls apart yeah what did, what was your life for right and then you got sad heaven again that's right sad heaven sad heaven so i've you know i love my sisters i respect them i admire them mm-hmm. is it reciprocated yeah oh they've always been nice to me my sister julie um started volunteering for fair fair mormon mm. uh, several years ago mm. uh doing podcasts wow uh, working with Michael Ash, you know Michael yeah. Ash is, mm-hmm. and um, I think I don't know, but I I I have to think that she's like, well, John's doing all this work that isn't perceived as faithful. The world needs another Delin to kind of counterbalance. It sounds like that. So she kind of filled in, and and uh, but you know we don't see the world the same. But I've always felt loved by her mm-hmm. and supported, even though. She could easily see me as an enemy to goodness, but she's never treated me that way. Wow. So that's been really good. My brother, Joel, um, awesome, seven kids. Uh, he was the chief information officer for the LDS church for like six or seven years. Mm. First name basis with the first presidency, Quorum of the Twelve. Wow. Um, uh, yeah, he, he um, I think... You know, I don't want to totally talk for him, and he's in a sensitive position, but I think, you know, I think he's kind of, um, you know, not engaged like he once was, mm-hmm. but but still very supportive of his family mm-hmm. and still a great guy mm-hmm. and uh, is still amazing, a huge support and friend to me. He lives here, so I'm, I'm closest to him. Fantastic. But maybe someday he'll tell a story because he's seen, he's seen the church from the inside, mm. close up. Wow! Yeah, he'd be a fascinating guy to spend an evening with. Yeah, but he's just—he's a great guy. Did mom? You stay with mom, or go with dad, or jump around? So I, so I started with mom, and then mom moved out, and dad moved in, and then I'd see mom on the weekends, and then I'd see dad on the weekends, and. It was kind of a hopping around sort mm. of situation. My mom's on her third marriage. My dad's on his fifth marriage. Mm. And that made it a little bit turbulent. One of the things I'm really grateful for is that my parents never fought. Mm. 
So there was never this notion of custody. There was never a battle over possessions. They they were just like no there's gonna be no drama in this divorce. Wow. That doesn't mean there wasn't sadness sure. or betrayal or whatever, mm-hmm. but there was just no conflict. Wow. They'd both come to soccer basketball games or soccer games. They they both come to church events. They'd bring their spouses. Mm. No drama. Wow. No negativity. Mm. Neither would ever criticize or talk bad about the other. Wow. I'm super grateful for that. Yeah. The proof seems to be in the pudding because your siblings all have been married and stayed married and they haven't had disastrous lives the way it yeah. goes when parents who divorce are selfish. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mm. think that, that made a big difference. Wow. And that's true. Yeah. I'm I have the shortest duration marriage and I'm about to hit twenty five years. Wow. And all my siblings look at that. Yeah. So yeah. we're proud of that. Yeah, I, in, in terms of high school, I did I did you know basketball, I did track, and you know I played soccer and tennis and football and different years, different Were you sports. Good? But I was a I think I was a good athlete. Best sport? It was basketball. Wow. Yeah, I, you know I could dunk by my freshman year of high school. I was wow. six four as a freshman, eventually six six, and and I played with guys who went on to play college ball or in the NBA. I I could have played college ball, but. Mm. I wanted to go to Zion. I wanted to go to BYU because I had, you know, had a scant pickings of Mormon girls mm-hmm. growing up. Although I did date Renee Zellweger in high school. I don't know if you know that story. I don't know that story. <laughs> yeah, it's a good story. I've told it before, but I'll tell it again. Let's hear Do it. Do you want to hear it? Oh, yeah. You'll love the story. I love it because she was married to Jack White, too. Who's that? Oh, he's a musician. My favorite, One of my favorites, but go ahead. She married him after Kenny Chesney? Yeah, she married him before for a very short time. What? Yeah. Okay, well... So I met Renee as a freshman in high school at Kitty High School, and we were all four years together, became close friends over time. And, uh, you know, she'd have me over late at night. She, I, you know, I wasn't like her, the guy she'd take to prom or homecoming, but I was the guy that she would call when she wanted to just hmm. hang out. So she'd call me over to her house and we'd sing Beatles songs together and drive around and have picnics. And wow. we went to the beach a lot and it was just fun. She was a really sweet girl. Uh, this is a, she's a famous actress now. She's won an Academy Award and for people who don't know, but uh, my junior year, you know, I was king of the steak. I thought myself as king of the steak dances, right? <laughs> I DJ a lot of these dances and, and these were really fun things. Yeah. So I'm like, this is my chance with Renee. I am going to invite her to a Mormon steak New Year's Eve dance. So it was um, it was New Year's Eve, uh, 1986. Wow. Okay. And uh, so I, you know, and it's semi-formal. So I'm wearing like khaki pants and a blue blazer and a white shirt and tie, my, my standard outfit, and then. Renee wears this black velvet dress mm. and she's really petite, you know, really, she's a modest girl. Mm. Just so happens her dress was kind of right off the shoulder. Oh. And I'm just a 16 year old boy. I'm not thinking about that. I'm just thinking how cute she looks mm-hmm. and how excited I am that she's going with me to a dance. Mm. So I pick her up in my Buick LeSabre and we drive, <laughs> you know, like 45 <laughs> minutes to Bear Creek, you know, and we go to the steak dance and we walk in and I'm just so pumped to like, cause she's a great dancer. She, you know, this, she was a cheerleader and they did all these dances mm-hmm. and she was fun. She knew all the music and we were going to have the best time. We walk into the steak center and this, this young women's leader immediately spots us. And, and remember Renee's not a member of yeah. the church, right? Yeah. So she says, Oh, Oh, sorry. You can't come in here wearing that, dress your your shoulders we can see your shoulders and i and i'm i i'm like oh i got this i got this so i'm like oh just one second so i pull the lady aside and i'm like she's not a member you know she's not a member it's okay you know she's not a member we want she's like oh that doesn't matter like all the other girls are gonna feel kind of jealous and envious that she's showing her shoulders that you know so here's the deal. She says either she goes home and changes. And remember, it's a 45-minute drive. Mm-hmm. Or she can wear your blue blazer the whole dance. Yeah, but she yeah, has to yeah. And I'm like looking around and Renee's like gone. And I'm like, so I go out to the parking lot and she's walking in the car crying. And oh. she's like, take me home. Wow. So I drove her all the way home. Wow. 
one of the worst nights of my life by far <laughs> another crack in the <laughs> she could have been our she could have been mormonism's tom cruise <laughs> she could have been mormonism's john travolta <laughs> yeah leah remini yeah you know they blew it <laughs> they blew it they could have had their celebrity oh so mormon church you blew it through Zoeger. So I'm hearing two stories already, and I'm I'm adding them up. One with your dad's disfellowship, a little crack maybe, and now Renee, it's it's there. It adds to the pile. It has to. It makes me so angry to hear these stories. Yeah. So it must have had some kind of really. That was super disappointing because I was I really loved Renee, or at least I thought I did, yeah. as much as a 16 year old could love anyone. I also remember uh, when Blacks got the priesthood. Mm, yeah. And I remember polygamy, just that never making sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I remember once uh, dividing the number of Mormons in the world. And this had to have been when I was getting all this adversity from my Baptist friends. Mm. Dividing the number of Mormons in the world by the number of people in the world. Mm. And I got like less than one half of 1%. Wow. And we were so orthodox back then mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, Bruce R. McConkie seminary kind of like orthodoxy. I was like man, if this is God's one true plan for all his children, mm. he's super inefficient. He's really ineffective. Mm. Mm. And has, you know, if my Baptist friends know that they're true, mm. and then my other, you know, uh, what's the charismatic, you know, he, my friend who's Pentecostal, they know they're true. Mm-hmm. We think we're true. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I never, ever at that point, Ventured to the point of asking, is it really true? And could it not be true? That wasn't even, I wasn't, didn't allow my mind to go there. Mm-hmm. But certainly I had those items that I started putting on the shelf. Mm-hmm. By the way, I had this crazy, Elder Layton is my seminary teacher. He keeps coming back. He, this is the guy who told me once that he had special spiritual powers that he could, sometimes he would sit in the back in sacrament meeting and tap people on the shoulder spiritually where they wouldn't know. What, so they would kind of, he would tap them on the shoulder and they would kind of look around. He, you know, he would, he would tell us he had these kind of powers. And then, and then he, he once did two object lessons for us. And maybe you've done this. He once brought a life-size cross into the seminary and he, and he asked me to play Jesus. Whoa. And he, and he, and he, and he drove a nail and he, and he nailed me to the cross and he asked me to writhe in pain in front of my fellow seminary students while he nailed me to the cross. And I was stoked that he picked me to play Jesus. You know what I mean? (laughs) But it was super awkward to writhe in pain in front of my fellow seminary students. It's like, ah, ah, you know, as as, as Elder Layton's nailing me to the cross. Religious people are crazy. (laughs) Keep going. uh, Have you ever done that? No. Uh, It's an object lesson. Oh, it is an object lesson. It's an objective objectionable lesson but go ahead the other the other thing he uh the other object lesson he did that i'll never forget he cleared out he put us he put our seats in a semicircle and he put like eight stones in the middle of the room like in front of us and he's like so i know that at some point i've probably offended some of you i've probably hurt your feelings i've probably said something that was hurtful and i want you to know that I've, I've, I'm not, I'm not worthy. And so I invite you all to stone Stone me. me. And he like kneels down in front of us and just like kind of lowers his head. And we're all just like, you know, and then he starts weeping uncontrollably and he starts sobbing. Wow. And this is like 10, 15 minutes. You know how long that is, right? And then finally, you know, he kind of just wipes his tears off and stands up. And that that was the lesson. You know what I mean? It was just super intense. You know what I mean? But like you get your patriarchal blessing and it tells you you're going to rise in the morning of the first resurrection. Mm -hmm. And you, you you know, you get ready for your mission and you feel like you're going to convert the world and Mm -hmm. all that Bruce R. McConkie orthodoxy, Mm -hmm. Mormon doctrine just makes you feel like you're chosen. So it sounds weird. It sounds kind of cultish in some ways. Mm -hmm. And I was like, 
I graduated, you know, like 11th in my class of 400 kids, honor society, uh, student body president, captain of the varsity basketball team. I was actually received a scholarship. The Elks Lodge Mm. for the entire state of Texas had a scholarship program where you'd like, if you know, if if you won for your school, you'd get a $200 scholarship. And then if you won, if your county, you'd get a $500 scholarship. And then if you won for the state, you'd get like a, and I was actually selected as the student of the year for the entire state of Texas for the Elks Lodge. I mean, that's not like, it's it's money. Texas is huge, Yeah, you know, and it was several thousand dollars and I got, you know, a full tuition scholarship to BYU for two years. And like, I was on cloud nine. I just, I kind of ruled the high school and kind of ruled the stake. And I just, I felt like I, nothing could stop me. You were the guy. I got the picture. <laughs> Did you, just really quickly, as deacon teachers, uh, no, deacon teachers, priests, were you in leadership with that? Yeah. Participate in ward council and all that stuff too? All, all that stuff. So you, you have the pedigree. Seminary president. And, seminary president. Yeah. Steak dance king. Yep. Yeah. BYU. Living, living the dream. Yeah. And then I, yeah, BYU, I didn't even apply. I, you know, I could have gotten in the lots of colleges, universities, mm-hmm. scholarships, University of Texas, mm-hmm. Texas A&M, whatever. Didn't even apply. Just mm-hmm. BYU. That was it. Where'd you live? I lived in Healman Halls in Chipman Hall back when Chipman Hall was a male. Now it's a female dorm, but wow. back then it was a, and it was the honors dorm in Healman Halls. Wow. And, and it was such a cool ward that Elder Holland's daughter, Mary Holland, attended that ward because she lived with him in his like mansion like yeah president's residence on campus but but this was the ward that she would wow. attend. so i i actually dated mary holland as a freshman at byu and uh i played tennis with jeff because she set it up and so wow so i've actually played a full set of tennis with elder jeffrey r holland wow. did you beat him i beat him bad good good <laughs> he, job now he he had he told me that his achilles had ruptured or something so he, so he was lying even game. then. Just kidding. But I, no, I think he had. I think it had. I think I beat him like six or six. Awesome. Yeah, it was kind of. So you're friends with his daughter? Yeah, she wow. was great. Wow. She's still around here. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. So BYU, uh, how long did you go before the mission? One year? Just two one years? year, and one. it was amazing. And, mm-hmm. you know, Elder Holland was like my Book of Mormon teacher. I did honors, you know, Book of Mormon. And, yeah, it was, it was like I was, fe- you know, I. I went to Temple Square just like Dorothy when she goes to Oz. I remember I like drove to Temple Square and parked my car and walked around and saw the Christus and, you know, went to, went to um, general conference in the tabernacle before the meganacle was built and heard the Mormon tabernacle choir and saw the prophets and apostles speak from the podium. And it was, I just was like soppy, you know, Marvin J. Ashton, L. Tom Perry and Neil A. Maxwell and you know what I mean? Oh. I knew all the names. I could tell you the apostles in order, their oh. order of succession, and I wrote down their quotes and like marked my scriptures and like I was oh. in it, you know, just fascinating. Ezra Benson, I think, uh, had become prophet by that point. He was my cousin, and so hmm. you know that was super cool. Wow. Yeah, uh, sold out. Heady time. Yeah, it was a heady time. Yeah. And a lot of it pointed to your ego. To what? Your ego. Oh, well, I mean. When you look back, wasn't it ego driven? Oh, yeah. yeah. To this day, I still haven't tried beer. And, and I, it's ego. It's just like, well, it's something I've never done. And I can tell people I've never tried alcohol. I've never tried cigarettes. I've never tried yeah. drugs, you yeah. know. Like, I'm better. You know, there yeah. it makes you feel like you're better than people. Yeah. yeah. And that gives you a sense of confidence sure. and security mm-hmm. in a, you know, in a world that can be scary. Are there vestiges of that in you still? There's gotta be. Yeah. Yeah. It's gotta be. So the mission, where was the call to Guatemala? Got called to Guatemala and uh, didn't know where Guatemala was. Mm. I thought it was like South America. Mm. Isn't Every, it? <laughs> Sorry. Basically everything South of Texas was Mexico <laughs> to a, <laughs> Texan. A Texan, yeah. Yeah, it's just all Mexico. <laughs> I didn't even know that they spoke Portuguese in Brazil at that point. You know uh-huh. what I mean? It's just all Mexico. So, no, I'm not that bad. But I had to look it up on a map. <coughs> yeah, but um, my dad didn't really want me to go. That was really interesting because my dad 
he's just like, you could get hurt. Mm. Like, why aren't you just going to like Winnemucca, Nevada? Like, why do you need to go to a third world country? Mm. By this time, he he was struggling with parts of the church because mm. of the, that disciplinary council and just how he was treated. He would just say to me, he would like he would say things like, "The temple's weird," you know what I mean? Mm. And this is before they made the changes. Mm. So this is when you do the penalties and the signs mm-hmm. and the tokens and the, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, he's just, you know, I'm like, well, that, that you can't say the temple's weird, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. but he's like, I just, I'm just telling you, I've never really gotten much out of the temple, and it kind of freaks me out. And then like, there was Eshtab Benson's big push in the MTC for like Book of Mormon, flood the earth with the Book of Mormon. And I remember for some reason I had to talk to my dad on the phone in the MTC, and he's like, I've always been a New Testament guy, like. Oh. Book of Mormon's just never really spoken to me. I'm like, Dad, you can't say that. The, wow. I'm in the MTC. You know what I mean? Wow. He's just like, it's about Jesus. It's about service. It's about love. He's still that way. Mm. He He's your kind of Mormon. He's mm. just a Jesus Mormon. Mm. Wow. You know? Uh, and he's he's always been that way. It's like service. Yeah. My dad, for my dad, religion was stopping to see someone whose car is broken down on the mm. side of the road and fixing their flat wow. tire taking them to get help with their car. It was someone needs help moving. You go help them move. He's still that way. Totally that way. Is he still LDS? Still LDS. Wow. But not. Not the way LDS are LDS. He's not Orthodox at all. Yeah. Not Orthodox. He's like, he would probably just say, I'm a savior Mormon. Now it's just, it's about the savior. Yeah. Joseph Smith, uh, Book Mormon, uh, Temple, Jesus. I really liked him when I met him. Yeah. He was, he was nice to me and he knew what I did and he was very respectful. I oh, really yeah. Him, yeah. He's super open-minded in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. So that was weird to have my dad like kind of, no. you know, but I was just like, well, dad, you know, he's, you know, he made mistakes and. Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, you had that a little bit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's like poor dad. And, oh, but I'm, I got you know, it. again, that ego. Yeah. I think that. So good to hear. Oh, for sure. For sure. That. For yeah. sure. Yeah. You um, had gone to the temple when we did all this. Yeah. 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 I slipped my throat and yeah. I disemboweled, disemboweled myself. Yourself. And, you know, and they mocked Christians and the, yeah. you know, they had a, a pastor with a collar and, mm-hmm. and mocked the crap out of him. And, mm-hmm. and yeah. And, the, you know, and Bruce Armacocky had said the Catholic Church was a great abominable. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of pride. Mormon pride and yeah. judgment. But yeah, the temple freaked me out. I went, My brother took me through. I don't know why. Mm. It was the Jordan River Temple. And mm. I got into it because you have to. That's just what you do. Yeah. But it was just like, why are we, why am I slitting my throat? Mm. <laughs> so you had some questions. For sure. Wow. But but more more shelf. Yeah. Shelf. Yeah. Who, the mission so, president. Yeah, yeah my mission president was Gordon Romney. He's a, you know, he would have grown up with ancestors in the in the in the colonies of Mexico. Oh. So, Mitt Romney and his dad, mm-hmm. uh, the governor, what was his name? The other Romney. Uh, yeah, they all would have come from Mexico. It was like the way the Mormon Church could avoid the laws mm-hmm. outlawing polygamy by sending their members to Canada and mm-hmm. Mexico. So, anyway, he he spoke fluent Spanish and he had worked for like IBM. He was this kind of corporate businessman type. And he was just all about becoming the highest baptizing mission in the world. Wow. So, uh, so very quick into my mission, there'd be like companionships who are getting 10 baptisms a month, 20 baptisms a month. And I'm like, this is cool. We're baptizing like, a, you know, and, and we started 400 is a mission, 400 baptisms a month, 500 baptisms a month. And I'm like, it's a miracle, you know. But then you find out, you know, oh, well, they baptized a drunk or they baptized a seven-year-old. or they ba-, And you start going, well, that's kind of weird. Or they baptize little kids, little eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds. And, and immediately that was like this disconnect because it felt like, oh, and he implemented these incentive techniques to convince missionaries to get, you know, so it was like if you had – Seven baptisms a month at, at zone conference, you'd stand up in front and get a little certificate with your name on it and seven baptisms a month. Mm. So you get to take that home and you've got the little certificate. He had a, um, if you got 10 baptisms a month or more, 
you got a Janish Cat Perry cassette tape serving with joy. And, you know, and then, and then every month he'd have a party for all the companionships that had 10 baptisms a month or more. So you'd all, wherever you are, you'd come to the Capitol, you'd have like a nice lunch, a party, you know, and a steak dinner, whatever. Mm. And, um, it was just like these sales incentives. And then he had a monthly newsletter that had, you know, all the top baptizing companionships and their numbers. And slowly you'd see these numbers, 10 a month, and then 20 a month, and then 30 a month. And by like a year into my mission, there were companionships getting 40 baptisms a month. I want you to think about that for a second. Oh, yeah. That's more than one a day. Yeah. How do you baptize more than one a day on your mission? Wow. And then, so I would I would ask around. I'm like, because I want, like, you got these stories of, like, Mormon missionaries in England baptizing mm-hmm. entire towns or mm-hmm. congregations. Like, how do we do this, you know? And But then I, I'd have, it's like, oh, you don't you don't want to know. You know, I'd, I'd talk to someone who was in one of these zones where they'd have 40 baptisms in one companionship. And it'd be like, we went to a soccer field. And we played soccer with the poorest, poorest part of town. With the you know kids with te- without teeth and like bare barefooted parents were working in the finca. Play soccer with ten kids for an hour, get them super hot and dusty, and then say, "Let's go back to the chapel and cool off." Right? Wow! So they take them no bat no no lessons, never been to church, no parental consent. Wow! Right? Amazing. And then they baptize them. You know, just ten at a time. I had a companion. I had a companion who told me that kids were literally doing cannonballs in the baptismal font. I'm sorry, I'm laughing, but it's it's just yeah. there's a humorous side to this. And then, so they'd get their ten for you know that Saturday, and then they'd party all week. They traveled to other countries with the mission car. They would, um, you know, go to movies. They would watch TV. They would listen to pop music. And then the next Saturday, do it again. Wow. And so uh, it was just total fraud. Mm. And I even pulled my mission president aside at different points. I'm like, president, it feels like we're not always getting converts. And it feels like we're not always, you know, really building the kingdom. Sometimes it feels like we're just like, focusing on numbers and he's like elder you don't understand like if you baptize them as soon as you baptize them they get the gift of the holy ghost Mm. and once you give them the gift of the holy ghost it can activate in them and it Mm. can transform their lives and even if they fall inactive Mm. they have the gift of the holy ghost so it can reawaken in them later whereas if you don't baptize them they don't have the gift of the holy ghost and by placing a book of mormon in their home who knows if a family member will stumble on it later and then get rebaptized later? So we're planting seeds by baptizing them that can sprout in who knows what ways later. Wow. And then he said, and even if they never are active during their lifetime, if they die, we won't need to do their temple work for them <gasps> because we will have already baptized them. Oh my goodness. So there's no downside. So baptize. Baptize, baptize. You what'd know what you, I mean? What did you think of the explanation? I felt sick inside. Wow. I felt, I, I feel like I was doing it for the right reasons. Like, I was like, these are sacred ordinances mm-hmm. and people need to be converts. And, you know, you don't just, mm-hmm. you know, you don't just pervert God's holy ordinances mm-hmm. for statistics. I mean, it felt like my mission president, Gordon Romney, was trying to become a general authority. Mm-hmm. And he was wanted to do that by having the highest baptizing mission in the world. We reached something like 750 baptisms a month. Unbelievable. And, you know, at the time, like only Chile, Vina del Mar, you know, had over a thousand. And it turns out they were doing beach party baptisms where they would like have parties at the beach and baptize people. And Elder Holland closed over 30 stakes in Chile alone in the aftermath of those 80s years where it was just kind of like, coked up fraudulent baptisms Mm. so that was the first major major break to my testimony because i i finally confronted my mission president about it as a zone leader Mm. i was i was like on the track i'd been branch president twice on my mission i'd opened up areas um i had 
you know, grown. I had opened up an area with no members. And by the time I left, we had 40 people attending church every week. Mm. Then I went to an area with like 40 members. And by the time I left, there were like 80 or 100 people attending every week. I was growing these areas, serving as branch president, zone leader. Mm. But, but I confronted him and I just said, this feels wrong. And this is about uh, 20 months into my mission. And he screamed at me, you know, and he just said, don't ever challenge your priesthood leaders. How dare you question what we're doing? If you ever do this again, I'm going to demote you from zone leader. And then he exiled me to Uspantan Kiche, which was not even technically like in our mission. It was like, it was a five hour bus ride to the nearest telephone. And then a six hour bus ride. So like an 11 hour bus ride to the mission home. And it was clearly to exile me so that I wouldn't mess up the good thing that he had going, that I wouldn't spread the word and that I would feel punished for forever crossing him. And that put a dark sort of like spot in my heart that lasted up until my excommunication. Like, cause that never, that felt like deep abuse and fraud. And I came home from my mission they actually came home. They gave me a chance to end early honorably because mm. I got sick in that last area. Mm. I said, President, I'm sick in this area. And he's like, oh, okay, I'll send you home. Mm. So he sends me home four months early. Mm. And I'm like, Ugh, you know, but I'm like Nephi. Like, I'm not going to yeah. end my mission early. Mm. So I'm like, no, send me freaking back out. Mm. Like, so I ended up in Arizona, mm. Phoenix, Mesa, Gilbert, Chandler, Tempe. Mm-hmm. Served my four months there. They made me a zone leader again over mm-hmm. Spanish-speaking missionaries and um, finished my mission honorably. Wow. But while I was there, I'm like, this is my chance. I'm going to tell church headquarters that Gordon Romney was doing this stuff. And they're going to like helicopter in to Guatemala and like <laughs> excommunicate him and fix everything. So I like tell my mission president, who is an outgoing Mission president who had just been called as a general authority, mm. Doral Woolsey, mm. is going to the Philippines. I'm like, Elder Woolsey, I have to tell you what happened on my mission. So I like tell him the whole story. You know what I mean? And he's like, you know, jaws open, like, oh, I'll tell Salt Lake, don't worry, I'll take care of this, you know? And then weeks go by, and I'm like, did you ever talk to Salt Lake? Did you ever work that out? Mm. And he's just like, you know what, Elder Delin? I talked to Salt Lake, told them the story, and they feel like it would cause a big stir if mm. they did anything. So they've just decided to let President Romney finish out his mission. Mm. And then later, when he got home, he was called to serve on the missionary committee for the church. Wow. And he was called to preside over the sesquicentennial celebration that wow. the church had back then. That was huge. And he was in charge of it. Wow. And that's when I'm just like, does the fish rot from the head? Mm. Wow. That was the first time I'm like, mm. and, and the way I justified it, it was like, well, the church is perfect, but the, but the mm. leaders aren't, mm. you know what I mean? And that's how I put all that on my shelf. But I, I always had this dark space in my heart. And even ever Elder Oaks, I wrote a letter to Elder Oaks telling all on my mission, or like this eight page letter included like proof of all the certificates you know, photocopies of the newsletters and the certificates and all that stuff. And he called me personally, Elder Oaks, an apostle, Mm. to apologize for what happened. Mm. But they never, you know, like, you know, I still hear that these things continue to go on. They've never made a policy denouncing these type of tactics. They've never, you know, and, uh, you know, I think the activity rates in Latin America are like 10%. Yeah, yeah. 5% 5% in some places. Yeah. So it's a Potemkin town. It's a total yeah. fraud. Our numbers, you know, you know, we sure. we claim 16 million Mormons or whatever, but we've probably got five on the books. Yeah. And a huge, millions are these fraudulent baptisms in Brazil, South America, wow. Chile, Argentina, Guatemala, Mexico, and the Philippines. And I'm sure we're bapping it up in, in Africa right now. Sure. And I'm sure... That's the only way that our membership looks like it's not declining. Yeah. Is we're going to make up statistically in Africa for, you know, 
for where we're losing in, in Western Europe and in North America, you know what I mean? So What happened to Romney besides the sesquicentennial and the uh, He ended up as an adjunct faculty at BYU teaching mm. computer science, and mm. he's an entrepreneur. And, oh, okay. Um, he came to my wedding reception. Wow. It's kind of awkward. Mm. Um, I hadn't done the podcast by that point, mm. so he would have had no reason to... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So anyway, I, I was grateful that he never was made a general authority like mm-hmm. that for me. If I think if he had been made a general authority and he was gunning for it, yeah, I think I would have lost my testimony, but he didn't. And, and Elder Oaks apologized. Mm. And so that allowed me to kind of hang on. But at BYU, I, I always had this dark, that's when the criticism I like learned about Sunstone, mm. I learned about, you know, the September 6th. That was my senior year at BYU, 1993. Joanna Brooks was marching with with feminists, Mm -hmm. and they were marching for abortion and for women's rights and against rape and Mm -hmm. sexual assault. So I kind of had this intellectual awakening at Mm -hmm. BYU, of all places, Mm -hmm. from like 1990 to 1993. And that's when I learned about a little bit more about church history, a little bit more about intellectual dissent mm. but but it was all framed within faithful because back then you could be a sunstone mormon and sure. still be a believer that's probably still true mm. so you learn about Lowell Benyon or or eugene england mm. and it's like oh well you can be like an intellectual edgy mm-hmm. progressive mormon and still be active oh well that's what i'll be and mm. so so byu radicalized me but at the same time liberalized me mm-hmm. so i just was like a kind of a liberal mormon mm-hmm. where you know i got married in the temple and stayed faithful mm-hmm. and would stay super active but it would you know i i wasn't gunning for bishop i was like mm-hmm. you know I, I might wear a different colored shirt sometimes to sure. church or i might a little radical <clears throat> i might ask harder questions mm-hmm. and you know or teach sunday school or elders quorum lessons that push the envelope a little bit mm-hmm. and you know what I mean? Or yeah. we're Birkenstocks at church or whatever it was just as a way to say, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm in the program, but I'm not uh, a lackey. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And that's how I dealt with that dark spot in my heart. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, I can't give everything, mm-hmm. but I'm going to still mm-hmm. be committed. Does that make sense? Total sense. Uh, what'd you study at BYU? I, uh, political science. Graduate from BYU. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. I graduated. Summa cum laude with a 3.96 GPA. Holy cow. And uh, got, you know, full rides. And wow. it was, you know, I applied to Harvard Law and I applied to the University of Texas Law and BYU wow. Law. I was going to, I did a congressional internship on Capitol Hill. Mm. So I, you know, went back to D.C. and I rubbed shoulders with senators and congressmen. And I, I think I wanted to be a, a politician I at see. the time. So I was going to go to law school, become a politician. And that was, you know, and so I, I was, I was graduated from BYU prep to do whatever I wanted. And married. Married. I married right at the end. So right, right at the end. like the month I graduated, December of 1993, Margie and I got married in the Washington D.C. temple. I dated Elder Hatch's daughter. Wow. You know, Senator Hatch's daughter, yeah. Alyssa. You know, and I, you know, I was just like I was poised to like. Be a big Mormon deal. Wow. <laughs> Whatever that means. <laughs> I, I am telling you, I can't believe, I mean, I believe it having talked to you and you're eloquent and you're a very good interviewer and everything, but I can't believe how much integrity you have coming into the story. I mean, you were sold out. I know the guys like you. David Tuckfield was a guy in our stake. You are the David Tuckfield. He's in Washington, D.C., lawyer now. He was the king of the this and he has the smarts. You were that guy. So that lends to such uh, integrity and credence to who you are as a person. It really makes a lot of sense in what you're doing now. So you married Margie. Then what did you do? Uh, I went to work for Bain & Company. So that was a this elite management consulting firm that Mitt Romney started. Wow. He started it in Boston after hmm. he went to Harvard Law. You say Harvard. Banyan? Bain. Bain. Oh, oh yeah. So Bain. Mitt Romney oh, became okay. rich and famous by starting Bain & Company. Yeah. And, you know, they were a Fortune 500 management consulting firm. Hmm. So that was my first real job out of college. You know, every it was like BYU guy, Harvard guy, Harvard guy, Stanford guy, Stanford guy, you know, 
MIT guy, MIT guy, you know, that's Chicago guy. Wow. Like that's who Bain hired wow. was elite undergraduates from Ivy League universities. Okay. So that, you know, and so I was immediately consulting Continental Airlines. I helped in the merger of Lockheed and Martin Marietta, wow. these two defense contractors. And it was the golden ticket to, you know, um, to wealth. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and so I did Bain for a year, but I hated it. It felt, it felt like, a, um, you know, it was like, you know, Harvard CEO of Fortune 500 company wants to have this arbitrage opportunity of like swooping in and fixing 12 things to increase the market cap of the corporation and then sell it for this big differential mm -hmm. and bail with this parachute wow. and get rich. And so we as consultants would be brought in to like downsize and like fire a bunch of people mm. or like privatize this or that, mm. you know, so that we could claim this sort of superficial gain in profitability wow. so that someone could cash out with the differential. You know well, what I mean? I do. And it felt, it felt dirty, you know? Um, it didn't feel like we were creating real value. We were firing people. Um, and it just felt gimmicky. And I, I'm not, that's not to disparage the management yeah. consulting industry. Yeah. But for me, it just, I'd watched too many Frank Capra movies mm. at BYU. Mm. Probably my favorite class of all at BYU was this um, theater and film like 117 with Charles Menton. Did Loved you? It. I had it with Menton. Yeah, yeah. So you see like It's a Wonderful Life yeah. and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington sure. and You Can't Take It With You yeah. and, and, and freaking. A uh, man for all seasons, sure, right? Yeah. And you learn about Sir Thomas More and how yeah. he stood up against King Henry VIII and was executed for yeah. it. And and uh, you 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 see this, it's, you know, you can't take it with you. And it's like nothing matters in life if you haven't led a meaningful life. And I bought it. It was like that was my religion. Mm. And Christianity bolsters that, you know, like it so, should. like what it should, it should. So it, Bane, I'm just like this feels. It just feels gross. God, it seems like Bain was just the corporate example of what you experienced in your mission president. It totally. I mean, Romney. It was another Romney. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure Mitt Romney's a great guy, yeah. but it just felt it felt gross. It wow. felt dirty. So the internet had, you know, 19, we're talking 1994, 95 now. The internet had just come onto the scene. Mm. And I'm like, that's going to be a big deal. Mm. That internet thing, mm. I'm following that. So I left Bain after one year. Nobody leaves Bain after one year. What you do is you do Bain two years, then you go to Harvard, Stanford, MIT, Chicago, or Northwestern, mm. get your MBA, and then you get your six-figure salaried job that takes you to million, millions of dollars within five, 10 years. Mm. Like that's everyone who works at Bain or McKinsey goes on that track. I left that track after one year and went to Arthur Anderson in Chicago, which wow. was an accounting firm the top accounting firm in the world sure. at that time to learn technology because Bain didn't want to follow technology at the mm -hmm. time. So I did a year at Arthur Anderson, learned technology, left Arthur Anderson, became a, a, a programmer, mm. computer programmer, because mm. at least I felt it was creative and I felt like I was automating processes. I was helping businesses be more efficient. Mm. It felt more tangible mm. and fun mm -hmm. than management consulting. And then interestingly, uh, I was hired by the LDS Church as a contractor to do computer programming for the Mormon Church. Wow. So in like 1996, 97, I moved to Salt Lake City hmm. from Chicago and uh, did did programming for the church for a year. Hmm. And the coolest project that I worked on was a general authority candidate tracking system. Wow. <laughs> I thought it was all by inspiration. Well, it may be, but they needed some, you know. So did you the, create the, it? Well, no, I, I, I maintained it. I maintained it. Yeah, and improved it. So, so basically, you would have general authorities that would travel to missions and interview mission presidents. They would travel to stakes and interview stake presidents and call new stake leaders. And then they would travel to temples and, and visit temple presidencies. And so those were the candidates for general authority, former wow. stake presidents, mission presidents, and temple presidents. But when, you know, let's just say Marvin J. Ashton goes to Nebraska and meets with the mission president there, they would need some sort of organizational memory. Like 
because they had all this criteria for becoming general authority. Do they have a lot of debt? Mm. Are they successful in their business? Mm. Are they in a happy marriage? Do they have any like troublesome spouse? Do they have a troublesome child? Wow. Have they gotten into debt? Would they be an embarrassment for the church? Have they committed infidelities? Wow. You know, are they, you know, successful? Yeah. And so you'd need to write all that down as a general authority so that future general authorities that come could know over time how this person was progressing in their candidacy for general authority. Amazing. So this computer system tracked all that. And I was, I was, that was one of the main things I did. We're going to stop this for, I am so excited to continue on with part two (laughs) to see what happens with, with John in his life. We know what happens actually, but I don't know how it happened. And then we will hit part three following thereafter. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you next week.